we're going to talk about something we typically celebrate, and 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 a lot of times we tack it on to end of services. We we or we tack it on to the first of the service. But we're going to talk about something today because it just falls in the flow of the text. Okay, and we're we're going to learn a little bit. I hope, but we're in a, a series, and we're calling it Explosion, Becoming a Radical Church in a Hostile Culture. And, and we're looking at what caused the early church to grow. How, how did it survive? How did it, it didn't just survive, how did it thrive like it did? And so we're looking at those principles, that blueprint that, that, that God has given us. And I've, God gave me the idea of explosion because literally that's what took place on Pentecost. That's what happened. There was a tremendous amount of, of power and energy in the, in the person of the Holy Spirit who was focused on a little bitty room upstairs in a teeny tiny house in Jerusalem. A teeny tiny country. There was a tremendous amount of energy. Whenever a tremendous amount of energy is focused on a small spot, there's an explosion. And that's what happened. There was an explosion when the, when the Holy Spirit came in fulfillment of the Old Testament promises of Joel and also of Jeremiah, but also of what Jesus said. Jesus told them, his disciples, before he left, he says, you wait, you tarry. That's the, old, that's the, that's the King James word, you tarry. You wait in Jerusalem until you are endued with power. Okay, You've walked with me for three and a half years. You've, you've used my power. Now I'm going to give you the power that was given to me. And he sent the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit comes and there's, a, there's an explosion. And, and, and it, it changes the world. It, 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 it's still changing the world. It's interesting, explosions don't just destroy. Did you know that? You think about an explosion. They also create something different. Explosions get rid of the old. But what is left is new. What was normal is gone. And in its place, a new normal is created. Very often it has some similarities to what once was, but it usually requires us, I usually never have trouble pronouncing words except a few. It usually requires us to interpret that differently for it to make sense. And it's interesting this morning, I love to see how God works and and man we are singing we were singing some some praise and worship songs and I thought you know what that's exactly the atmosphere of what we're going to talk about today we're going to talk about uh, an expl- that explosion that took place and and that that that's that's certainly the case as we look at at that explosion that took place on on Pentecost it was an explosion of 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 a Jewish system of beliefs and practices and literally they were blown to pieces that day meaning everything had to be reinterpreted now we look back through Jesus but they had to look forward through Jesus and they had to look back they were caught in a place where everything that they had been taught no longer made sense I'm talking about those, those, those 120 and those 3,000 and those that would be added. They were all Jewish. 
and, and what they had grown up with and what they had been taught and taught and taught all of a sudden had found its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And when something is fulfilled, it's completed. Amen? Which means we no longer keep the Mosaic law. Do we keep the principles of it? Yes, we do. There, there are, we don't kill. We don't commit adultery. We don't steal. We don't do all of it. We don't commit idolatry and those things. But we no longer go to the temple and sacrifice goats and lambs and bulls or, or doves. We don't do that any longer. And so all of a sudden, everything that meant anything to them had to be interpreted through Jesus Christ. This broad expanse of religious belief had to be focused down through one person for them to understand what it meant. Jesus had now become the lens where not only they, but we, as we look back, especially into the Old Testament, I hear people say all the time, well, we don't, we don't, the Old Testament's done. No, the Old Testament gives us the foundation on which we recognize Jesus. And if we don't have that foundation, we don't recognize Jesus. We don't know who He is or what He has done. And so we have to look through Jesus to interpret the law. We have to look at Jesus to interpret all those feasts. You see, all those feasts were not just a time to eat and have a great time. They were focused on something specific that Jesus would fulfill. All those sacrifices. Every year, I read through the Scriptures. I start in Genesis, and I make my way through Revelation. And every year, I get to Numbers, and, or I get to Leviticus, and Numbers, Deuteronomy, and it's like I almost grind to a halt because the, he, the, Moses, God gives Moses in detail how every one of those sacrifices is supposed to be done. And he doesn't do it once, he does it multiple times. He wants to make sure Moses understands so Moses can teach Aaron and his sons so they can teach the people. And, and I just I almost grind to a halt. But those sacrifices pointed to someone. Okay? They weren't the end all, be all. They pointed us to somebody. And so, so it's important that we understand those sacrifices, but we look, through, we look to them through Jesus. The holy days, the temple, all of those other practices, and there were tons of them that the Jewish people kept. All of those things foreshadowed Jesus. And without Jesus... That system becomes a system of slavery. It becomes a system of sin and death because they could never keep the law perfectly. We'll say a little bit more about that this morning. To those early uh, believers who were all Jewish, it was like their religious world exploded. You just think about this for a minute. What if... There was no longer a building that most of us call church to come to. What if there, and we've already gone through this explosions, what if there were no hymn books, no words on the screen? 
What if there were no pastor who stood and went on and on and on and on and on? What if all that changed? What if there were no small groups or, 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 or if, if, if you're from a church or a, a background where there was Sunday school? What if there were no more of that and you had to reinterpret all that you knew and do it differently? How many of you would sort of be lost? I would. You would. They were. They were. They didn't know what to do. So you know what they did? They went to the temple. We talked about this. They went to Solomon's colonnade and they just worshipped. And, 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 and the apostles taught and, and they began to interpret everything through Jesus. Jesus had been really clear during his ministry in Matthew 5, 17. He says, do not think I came to abolish the law or the prophets. The law was the writing of Moses. The prophets were, were the, 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 the larger books that are prophetic and the smaller books. But it, what he's saying there, in essence, the law and the prophets was their scriptures. I didn't come to abolish the scriptures. I came to fulfill them, to make them complete. And so when Jesus stands before them, the Old Testament is complete. The covenant that they were under is complete. You see, the law of Moses couldn't save anybody. I don't know whether you realize this or not, but all the law was given for was to define sin. It was to show people God calls this Sin. That's it. It gave no way out. The sacrifices were just credit cards, okay? How many of you got credit cards? What happens at the end of the month if you don't pay that credit card off? They penalize you. They give you more debt. That's what it was like. Nobody could pay their debt. And so... It couldn't save them. It was powerless to save. All it could do was condemn. All it could do was make you realize, I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner. You know what? Jesus satisfied the requirements. The requirements of, uh, uh, of the law of sin and death that nobody could keep. It was now satisfied in Jesus Christ. And holiness and righteousness and, and, and redemption and forgiveness, all of those things all of a sudden come by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. That was the new normal that took place. And they had to get used to it. And they had to figure it out. And, 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 they, and they had to, to come to grips with it. And over time, it would give rise to, to some new practice of faith that might faintly resemble their old practices. Whenever we talk about communion, what does it remind us of? The Passover meal. It's, it faintly resembles it, right? But it's more than a Passover. Okay? It's more than a Passover. Now, nowhere is that more evident 
is, is in this third activity that we're going to talk about, this, this third uh, principle that we're going to talk about today that God used to create a radical kind of church that could survive. In Acts chapter 2, verse 42, it says, and, and they were continually devoting themselves. They were given over to these things. And, and we've talked about the, the, the teaching of the apostles. We've talked about uh, 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 fellowship. Today, it says, and they were continually devoting themselves to the breaking of bread. And you might be thinking, well, breaking of bread, what in the world does that mean? Well, based on what Scripture tells us, it can mean a couple of things. It can mean the Lord's Supper. Or it can simply mean a meal together. Or it can mean both. And that's, that's what it means. And so what we have to look at is, is we have to look at the context and, and we have to try to understand it. Now, bread was the center of life in the Middle East, okay? This, it's still the staple in the Middle East. And, and, and the thing about the bread that most of them ate, it was thin, it was hard, and it was brittle. And so they didn't use a knife. It was just easier to break it. And that's what they would do. They would break the bread. Jesus breaks the bread whenever they would sit down and eat. And so they would break that bread and, and, and they would tear it to pieces. And if you remember, uh, I'm always reminded of this, if you remember on the road to a mess, after the, after the crucifixion, after the resurrection, there's two disciples that are walking and they're discussing and all of a sudden a third person joins them. And and. That third person asked them what's going on, and they're kind of blown away that he doesn't know. Well, he knew he was the center of it. And he begins to teach them from the Old Testament everything that, that the Christ would do. And so when they, when they get to the place where their road divert, went this way and the road he seemed to be going went this way, they invited him to come. And they sat down and had a meal together. And as the guest, he broke the bread. And he broke it in such a way that they knew who he was. They had seen it done so many times by him that they recognized him. That breaking of bread uh, was, was a common euphemism, a common saying, for, 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 and it meant intimacy, and it meant friendship. And it was shared when people sat down and ate a meal together. A meal was a big deal. That's when the family got together. Let me encourage you. I know we're fast-paced. we got a million things to do. But if it, you need to make one meal a day, a day when all the family sits down and eats. It will pay dividends. I know you'll hear them complain. I tell you, I've complained when I was a kid. My daughter complained when she was a kid. But Try to make one meal a meal where you can share that fellowship and you can share that intimacy together. And that's what they did. And these new believers, these new members of the church, they were like newlyweds. Y'all remember, those of you that are married, have been married? You remember when you first got married? I love it when I see a guy who's, who's, who's just married. I mean, he walks around, his eyes are this big around, and he's just... It's like he's in a daze. Same's probably true of the, the young lady, but uh, you can tell they're newlyweds. They act like that for a while. <laughs> Some people say they act like that all their life, but sometimes they don't, okay? 
But everything is still new. And, and that's the way that this, this early church was. Every, everything was They had new friends. They had people that they had something in common with. And so, so they, they didn't want to be separated from one another. They loved being together. And, and it's more than just togetherness. What it is is, is unity. They were one. Literally, they were one. And it's apparent that if, as you study this early church, they often shared meals together. And at the very end of that meal, they would share what they called, they would call the meal an agape feast. They, they would just, and, and feast, you know, when I think of feast, I think of sumptuous delicacies everywhere. Probably wasn't that way. It was bread, maybe some lamb, maybe some vinegar style dip with some herbs in it. It, was, it wasn't, but, but it was a feast. And they would share it with one another. And they called it an agape feast or a love feast. And at the end of it, very often they would participate in what we call the Lord's Supper. Or, we, or what some people call Holy Communion. A few weeks, I'm, I'm going to deal with the, the, the concept of, of eating together. Because this text mentions it again uh, in just a few sentences. So today we're going to deal with the communion aspect of it. We have to remember... Who wrote the book of Acts? Who wrote Acts? Luke. Was Luke a Jew or a Gentile? He was a Gentile. Okay. And we have to remember who trained Luke. Who do you think led Luke to Christ? Possibly. Paul. Paul was a Jew, right? Luke was a Gentile. Just think about this. So it's, it's, it's probably... Safe to say that the Apostle Paul would have trained Luke in the meanings and the concepts of, of the faith and, and, and of what the phrase breaking of bread meant when he said it. If you, if you read Paul's writings, what you'll find is, is almost every time he talks about breaking bread, he's talking about communion. He's talking about that. And so it's possible. It's not we don't know for certain, but it's very likely that that's what Luke was talking about here in Acts. It was the practice of celebrating the Lord's table, the Lord's supper. And so in his writings, communion and baptism would have, would have been the two permanent ordinances uh, to be celebrated by the church until Christ recur, uh, returns. Now, we know that Jesus instituted this meal on the night he was arrested. He would be arrested later. And the next day he would be crucified. And he, is, he, he and his disciples were just finishing the Passover meal. They celebrated the Passover meal every year. And they celebrated it in the same way every year. It caused them to look back and to remember what God had done for them when they were in Egypt. How God had, had killed the firstborn of, of Egypt. And yet, yet how he had passed over them because they had applied the blood of the sacrifice, the blood of the lambs to the doorposts. And so they would eat a meal and they would celebrate that. They had bread. They had wine. And Jesus takes those two elements, the bread and the wine, which were common to them in the Passover meal. And, and what he does is he institutes a new celebration. You remember the, the old covenant is what? It's done away with. 
There's a new covenant being made. So Jesus institutes a new covenant meal. We're going to talk about this in just a minute. And so he, Jesus is saying to those guys as, as he does that, he says, look, I'm fulfilling the meaning of the Passover meal. It would look forward to the day when, when a lamb would die for all the people. And his blood, when applied to people, would cause God to pass over them. They would, not be, they would not die. They would not be eternally dead. And so Jesus fulfills the meaning of that Passover meal. And now that it's fulfilled, he takes these two elements, which graphically demonstrated what he was about to do. And he instituted a new kind of meal to celebrate the new covenant that he was establishing because the Passover lamb had, was about to be fulfilled in him. Do you realize that Jesus dies? About 3 p.m. on the day that the Passover lamb at the exact moment was being slain at the temple. So God doesn't miss anything. He fulfills everything to the fullest. So they were, they were crowded in to see that lamb slain. But the lamb that mattered was outside the city. The lamb whose blood would not just symbolically take away the sin, but would literally take away the sin, was being slain. And so, Mark records it this way. He says, and while they were eating, Jesus took some bread. And after blessing it, he broke it. And he passed it around. And he gave it to him, and he said, take this, this is my body. This is my body. And when he had taken the cup... And he'd given thanks, he gave it to them. And they drank from it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. See, Jesus takes the very elements they were used to and gives them new meaning. Matthew tells us in his account of this that Christ's blood is poured out for the forgiveness of sin. Luke tells us that this blood signifies the new covenant. Jesus was instituting at that moment. And this moment is significant. I mean, it's a big deal. You know what? We don't quite get it. Okay? We, just, we don't quite get it because our culture is so far removed from the culture of the ancient world. For most of us, this meal is, let's just be honest, it's pretty mysterious, right? Even if we've had good teaching, it's still mysterious. We know what we're supposed to do, but we don't under, under, quite understand why, except that it's a memory tool to remind us of what the cross means. And, and that's good. That's a part of it, but that's not all of it. That's not all of it. When families in, in, the, in the Old Testament met together, uh, it, 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 and they worshipped, it, it was an interesting thing. In the ancient world, people would, would go to their temples and they would, they would bring an animal to sacrifice. And it was worship. It was worship. That kind of worship took place in paganism and it also took place in Judaism. In Judaism, it was a celebration of the covenant between God and His people. And so they would take uh, an, an animal down. And, and especially when they took peace offerings. That's one of the, 
seven or eight, maybe the seven sacrifices that were given. There were sin offerings and, and, and there were other kinds of offerings, but there was a peace offering. And a peace offering was a worship offering. And they would, their family would go down, the whole family would go down. They would bring their, their sacrifice to the temple or to the tabernacle and it was slain. The throat of that animal was cut. Some of it was burned on the altar. Some of it was given to the priest. And then some of it was given back to the family and they would eat it as a family together in the confines of that temple. They wouldn't leave. They would eat. And as they ate, they were, they were worshiping and enjoying communion with their God. See, when they ate this meal... They were fellowshipping with God. They were eating a meal with God, not a meal to God. They were eating with God. God was present in that meal. And so it was a very intimate thing. And that was the picture that foreshadows the deepest meaning of communion. So we're not just eating this with each other. Jesus is present. Now, I don't believe Jesus is present in the bread and I don't believe he's present in the wine, okay? That, that's a Catholic belief. I don't believe that, but I believe he's present. And I believe it's a big deal to him when we come and we worship and we commune. See, that's why we call it communion. We are communing, not with just each other, but with our God. And so... In, in, in that, in that, in that, that temple situation, that's what the Jews were doing as they brought their fellowship. That's what the early church was doing as they celebrated communion. It was a picture. It, it foreshadowed something. And when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we don't just remember what Christ did. We, we realize He's present. He's here. I'm going to tell you something. When you really Grab hold of the fact that Jesus is here. You won't have any trouble tap dancing. You won't have any trouble clapping your hands. You won't have any trouble shouting. Okay? You won't have any trouble singing, although you may not sing well. You won't have any trouble speaking. When it gets hold of you that the presence of the King is here, it makes you do things you wouldn't normally do. Amen? Some of you know what I'm talking about. But here's the deal. The early church was doing it, and they were calling it the breaking of bread. And it was just a family sitting down and worshiping by eating a meal together in the presence of their God, Jesus Christ. Now, 20 or so years later, the Apostle Paul writes a letter to the church in Corinth. Corinth was, was primarily a Gentile church. They didn't understand all, all the stuff about communion. They were, they were doing it. Paul had shown them how to do it, but, but they were abusing it. You say, well, how were they abusing it? Well, people would get there early, and they'd eat first. And they wouldn't just eat a little bit. They'd eat everything. And they wouldn't just drink a sip. You know, these little cups like we use, those didn't exist in the first century. All right? In fact, they probably didn't exist until about 1950 or 60. I don't know exactly when they came in. That's all I remember. But they, they didn't just eat a little bread. They ate all the bread. They didn't just drink the wine, a little wine. They drank all the wine. And so when 
everybody else got there, the few that had gotten there first, they were drunk. <laughs> they were partying beyond where they needed to party. And so Paul sends a letter of correction to it. He had to explain in, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, he had to explain the, the covenant meal of Jesus. And he had to clarify some things on it theologically so that they would do it correctly. And this is, this is what he says in, in 1 Corinthians 11, 23 and 26. And typically when, when we share the Lord's table here at, at Eagle's Wing, this is the passage that I'll, I'll read from. But this is what Paul says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. In other words, Jesus told me what this meant. See, Paul wasn't one of the twelve. Paul wasn't there at the Passover meal that became communion. So Jesus shows up somewhere, sometime, and teaches him exactly what it means. And he says, this, which I delivered to you, that the, Jesus, the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread... And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This is the cup in the new covenant in my blood. Do this. And as often as you drink it in remembrance of me, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The early church in Acts understood this meaning. They got it because they understood the basis of covenant. We don't understand covenant. For most of us, covenant and contract mean the same thing. They don't. Okay? They don't. It was a partnership. A covenant was a partnership. And when they celebrated this meal, it was a covenant meal. It was worship because the head was present with his body in this meal. There was a connection that was reinforced every time they celebrated. And that connection reminded them of what Jesus had done and that they were participating in a meal with him. And he was present. This wasn't ritual. This, this wasn't something that they just did. This was a personal encounter. I mean, when they, when they, when they tasted that bread and they, they tasted that wine, there was an encounter with Jesus. Okay? I will never forget when I was going to Beeson, I had a, a class that we had to visit four different kinds of, of churches that had different styles of worship. And I can remember we went to visit the Episcopal Church. Now I didn't understand it. All I knew is nobody had a Bible. And so I pretty much judged it. Well, they don't have a Bible, so how good can this be? And I sat down, and, and that's just my ignorance, okay? That was just my ignorance. And I sat down, and, and, and they celebrate communion uh, every service. And at the end of the service, the the, the priest, uh, he had the bread, and he had a cup. And it was a common cup. Okay? And so everybody got in line. And we, we, we made our way up there. Well, on my way up, I noticed someone I knew. It was my uh, church history professor, who was, a, who was an Anglican from England. And I, that was as close to his church as he could get, was the Episcopal Church. And I will never forget this as long as I live. He was on his knees, he was praying, and there were tears. I don't mean dripping, I mean flowing. He understood communion. 
And I thought, forgive me, God, I, I judged incorrectly here. I don't, I don't know nearly as much as I think I do, so teach me something. And, and God did. And so what, what, what happened here is, is, is they're having an intimate meal with Jesus. And, 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 and he was having, my, my professor was having an intimate meal with us. It was just him and God. Him and God. Nobody else was around. And that encounter was one of the ways in which they kept that fiery passion stoked. You know what? You have to stoke passion to keep it alive. You have to feed that fire. And the communion meal was a way that that God intended for us to keep that meal alive. It it stoked their faith. It it was present. It wasn't something that that they just looked at and thought, we know in the past Jesus did that. There was a presence about it right now. And we don't understand it because we don't understand covenant. Covenant means we have a new arrangement. We have a new relationship with God that no one else before the cross ever had. Do you realize that? You have a relationship unlike any before the cross. No one before the cross had the same kind of relationship that you do. You have a new covenant. Covenant is a binding agreement made between two parties. A marriage is an example of a covenant. A marriage is not a contract. It's a covenant. Uh, you know, it's, it's a contract. If one of the parties fails, then the agreement is what? It's void. It's null. I don't have to keep my part of it. If you break the contract, I, I'm done. But in a covenant, both parties agree to fulfill their part, regardless of what the other party might do. <coughs> A violation by one party doesn't mean that we negate the covenant as long as the other party does what they agreed to do. Jesus agreed to die. He kept his part of the bargain. He kept his part of the covenant. His covenant is set in stone. It can't be negated regardless of what you, you and I do or what we don't do. Biblical covenants were sealed with blood. If you, you can look in Genesis and come forward and you will see the covenant God made with Abraham sealed in blood. On and on and on. Every one of those covenants were blood covenants. And in our case, that blood was the blood of Jesus Christ. Hebrews 9.15 tells us that Jesus is the mediator. That word mediator means the one that stands between man and God. He stands in the middle. He's the mediator. He's the one who who stands between us. He's the mediator of a new covenant. In order that since death had taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of eternal inheritance. In other words, Jesus fulfills that old covenant and he makes a new covenant. And those early believers understood the meaning of covenant. They recognized the superiority of the covenant that they had with Jesus. Their sins were forgiven. They had been given the Holy Spirit. He had filled them. He had empowered them. And He had indwelt them, sealing them to God. They were God's permanent possessions. And let's just be practical here for a moment. 
an end had come to their continual trips to the temple. You see, depending on how well they kept the law determined how many trips they made. Now, I don't know about you, but based on my experience, right now, I'd be there every day. Y'all understand what I'm saying? Any of y'all struggle with sin? Every day? Okay. All of a sudden, they don't have to go to the temple anymore. Jesus has paid for their sins. And to put it mildly, they were ecstatic. Their toes were tapping. They were dancing. They were lifting their hands. They were clapping. They were getting after it. Because they were filled with hope and encouragement and confidence that no one or nothing could diminish it. They were eternally secure. Okay, They didn't have to worry about tomorrow. And they didn't have to worry about yesterday. All they had to do was live for God. Because he held them eternally secure in the palm of his hand. They were new creations in Jesus Christ. And they got it. It wasn't fire insurance. Okay? It wasn't. So every time they met to worship, they would celebrate this new covenant. And they would take part in, in communion. They, they would break that bread. And by, by eating that meal of celebration, they would worship in the presence of Jesus Christ. And listen, for them it wasn't a ritual. It was a powerful celebration that empowered them. It carried them. It was like spinach and Popeye. Y'all know who Popeye is? Most of my illustrations are too old. For the guys I'm teaching it in college, okay? They don't understand anything. But man, whenever Popeye got in trouble, he ripped open a can of spinach and all of a sudden he got struck. That's the picture here. They had communion and it reinvigorated them. It revived them. It wasn't ritual. It was not something that got old because it reminded them of the high cost of their freedom. You see... We don't struggle with that because we, in the natural, live in a country where we've been free for 200, over 200 years. We don't really even understand what freedom is when it's all said and done. We don't understand what slavery is. But it didn't get old to these guys. Because it reminded them of their freedom. It reminded them of the life, the life that was lost that gave them new life. The price that was paid so that they could walk in the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. You see, most believers today don't get it. Because they don't understand what the covenant meal really is. What freedom truly costs. Or, or the greatness of the gift of the Holy Spirit. For many of us, it's a ritual that we go through with just one thought on our mind. Oh God, oh God, oh God, please don't let me drop this plate when it goes by me. Some of you nodding your head. You know what it means. I can't tell you how many times I've thought that. I don't worry so much about the bread, but when I get the cup, my hands start to do this. And it just begins to slosh. And so for a lot of people, it, that's, that's the biggest thought that goes through their mind. And for others, sometimes it's, it's just a predictable right that we practice 
And its meaning doesn't have any rhyme or reason other than when this is over, we're going to pray, we're going to sing a song, and we're going to get out of here. And when we get out of here, then I can get after the most important part of my day. Okay? It's no wonder with that level of ignorance and lack of judgment that many believers find themselves where Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians chapter 11.30. Weak, sick, and a number sleep. And he doesn't mean snore. He means dead. You see, ignorance is not bliss. Unconcern is not bliss. It's deadly in the life of a believer. And so to be a a radical church doesn't mean we have to celebrate communion every time we meet. We don't have to. That's descriptive in the New Testament. It's not so much prescriptive. Prescriptive. See, we're looking at, at descriptive and prescriptive. The prescriptive thing is here is we need to celebrate it. And we need to understand it if we're going to celebrate it. Because if we celebrate it and don't understand it, it doesn't do a bit of good. It, it, it has no basis. It has no whatever. It does not connect us to the early church and it does not connect us to Jesus if we don't understand it. And so we have to remember that, that this is not just common and connects us to our roots. It connects us to Jesus. It's something that He commanded us to do. And He commanded us to do it in a very unique way. Now listen, the bread and the wine, they force They should force us to come to grips with the horrible cost of our salvation. See, this is not just a a mechanical thing. It, 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 It moves and works with our senses. We typically use flavorless wafers or that taste like styrofoam or little teeny tiny crackers that there's not enough there to get a good taste out of. They had a piece of bread. They had to chew it up. And they had to think, this is my body, which is broken for you. All of a sudden, I smell this stuff. You ever been by a bakery? The best job I ever had in plumbing was at a bakery. Downtown. I worked in there for a week. I would go home just smelling my clothes. It was wonderful. I would have done it for free. <laughs> this bread had a smell. It had a taste. It had a, a texture. And so they, they were reminded. And if that wasn't enough, then, then all of a sudden when they, when they took the glass, they had to remember that this is, this is blood. This, is, this represents blood. Now, I don't know how strong the wine was, but it was wine. That's what Scripture says. And wine is wine, and that's all wine is, all right? It's, it's fermented grape juice. Now, what we drank is pretty, pretty good, right? But I imagine some of that burned when it went down. And it reminded them of what Jesus was going to suffer and what He had suffered. And so... By using those senses, it helps me grasp my helplessness and my hopelessness. It's not just a thing that happens up here. It's something that happens with my hands. I have to take it. I have to place it in my mouth. I have to chew it up. I have to swallow it. it it's meant to, to remind. It's meant to, to connect all of us. It's to be an experience 
that we experience. Taste and text and texture and smell that remind me that Jesus paid a price for me. Me. When, when I take this meal, it's supposed to be personal for me. I, it, scripture doesn't tell me to examine my brother or my sister. It says examine yourself. So all of a sudden, even though we're corporately, it gets all the way down to just me. Me. It's personal. And when I truly get it, it should make me want to celebrate. Man, growing up, it was the most somber service we ever held. I mean, if I breathed out loud, my daddy thumped me on the back of the head. If I moved, pow! Listen, this was a meal that when the early church celebrated it, they shouted, they praised God. They had a party. And I don't mean that in a disrespectful way. I mean they celebrated Jesus. And so that ought to create in us an ultimate sense of joy and celebration and intimacy with our God when we celebrate it. When we taste the bread and, and taste the wine. You know what? The first church got it. They got it. Now, for it to mean something to us, and for it to change us, we have to get it. We have to understand it. Weak churches and powerless Christians don't survive in hostile cultures. Weak churches and powerless Christians are oxymorons. Okay? I didn't say morons. I said oxymorons. They mean words that don't make sense together. Okay? Weak Christian. That doesn't go together. Powerless church. That doesn't go together. There's no picture of that. The problem is, we just don't get it. And that's why we're weak. And that's why we're powerless. Let me give you the third principle. We've been looking at We looked at one about the apostles' teaching. We looked at one concerning fellowship. And I want to give you one today about Breaking the bread together, communion. The breaking of bread together, the celebration of communion, is, an ex is explosive and spiritually empowering and will only produce a radical church when we fully grasp its meaning and totally embrace the one whose life it symbolizes. This meal does not save. Okay? This meal does not keep you saved. Alright? This meal is a celebration that points to the one who saved you. It reminds us. And it makes our heart long for the moment when He's not just present with us in a spiritual way, but He's present with us physically. Where we can say, like Peter says, our hands have touched. I know we're going to fall on our faces, but there's going to be a moment, I truly believe this, when at least I'm going to be able to touch the hem of His garment. Okay? At least that. And I'm pretty sure they'll be better than that. But it, reminds, it causes us to look forward, to long for that, to anticipate that. I can I tell this story, and I'm going to close. I can remember... Uh, I don't know how many years ago. Kathy, I've been married... 42 years this year, okay? 
So I don't, it's, anyway, I went on a mission trip and I was gone a week. And then she went on a business trip and she was gone another week. And so we didn't see each other for two weeks. Now, in all of our marriage, we had never been apart from each other, but maybe a night or two at the most. And I knew she was going to fly in. She had gone to Chicago. And so, man, I was at the Birmingham airport. I had my nose pressed to that glass just like a little puppy. I mean, I knew the number. That's not it. That's not it. That's not it. I knew the number of the plane. I knew the time. I was waiting for her. I was eager. I was anticipating her return. And I can remember the emotion when I saw her when she came through that door and came through. I remember that. Folks, when Jesus comes back, it's going to blow that away. It's going to be ten times, a hundred times. I don't know how many more times more. But I, I missed her. I was longing for her to come back. I, I, I wanted to be with her. I wanted to tell her what had happened on my trip. Find out what had happened on our trip. All of that's going to be similar. Jesus, Jesus, let me tell you. Da, da, da. Oh my goodness. You know, we're just going to, we're going to freak out. Okay? We're not going to sit like this. Hello, Lord. I'm glad you're back. We're just not going to do that, okay? We're going to be like that kid that's so excited he can't say nothing. He just, you know, just, that's the way we're going to be. That's why we're going to fly, okay? Because if we ran around down here, we'd kill each other, running into each other. We're going to fly. The early church understood Okay? They understood. This meal reminded them. It, it stirred all those emotions up in them. It kept them cooking. It kept them alive. That's why we do this. Look, we don't have to. Of course, if we don't, we disobey Jesus. But, but we don't do it to mark something off on a list. We do it to keep us alive to keep us connected, to keep us remembering and looking forward. See, we live between two worlds, the past and the future. I can't keep both eyes in the back mirror. If I do, I'll run into something. I can't keep both eyes on the sky. If I do, I'm not any good right now. So I've got to keep one eye here and one eye there. I've got to anticipate. I've got to be long. And that's what this meal does. And when, when this meal really grips us, it won't be a somber, mournful celebration. It will be a happy, joyous celebration. Some of us might shout. Somebody may do a tip, you know. I know what y'all are saying. Nothing, you got no rhythm. I don't... You know, I don't need rhythm. I'll tell you what, if you'll practice that at home, you'll do better when you get here, okay? <laughs> okay. Now, here's the deal. We don't celebrate a Passover. We don't gather with our family once a year and, and everybody have a place and, and we go through and we train our kids and we teach them that we have communion. We need to train our children what this means. The reason we hadn't done it is because we don't know. Well, nobody here today has an excuse. All right? We need to train one another when a new believer comes in. We need to explain to them, hey, this is what this is. Man, we're, we're having lunch with Jesus today. It's dinner on the grounds. 
Okay? That, because that's what it is. It's a meal with our God. It's a covenant meal where we renew it and we remind ourselves. Let's pray. For more information on Eagles Wing Church, visit our website at www.eagleswingchurch.org or on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Eagles Wing Church. Thanks for listening and have a blessed week.